Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter, too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by speechtherapypd.com. Hey, this is Michelle Dawson, and I need to update my disclosure statements. So my non-financial disclosures. I actively volunteer with Feeding Matters, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD, Dysphagia Outreach Project, DOP. I am a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents, CSAP, a past president of the South Carolina Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, SCISHA, a current Board of Trustees member with the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia, and I am a current member of ASHA, ASHA SIG-13, SCISHA, the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia, SHAB, a member of the National Black Speech-Language Hearing Association in Basla, and Dysphasia Research Society, DRS. Additionally, I volunteer with ASHA as the topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2023 convention in Boston, and I hope you make it out there. My financial disclosures include receiving compensation for First Bite podcast from speechtherapypd.com as well as from additional webinars and for webinars associated with Understanding Dysphagia, which is also a podcast with speechtherapypd.com. And I currently receive a salary from the University of South Carolina in my work as adjunct professor and student services coordinator. And I receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, as well as compensation for the CEUs associated with it from speechtherapypd.com. 
So those are my current disclosure statements. Thanks, guys. Hi, this is Erin Forward, and these are my disclosure statements. I receive a salary from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. I receive royalties from Speech Therapy PD for my work with First Bite Podcast and other presentations. I also receive payment for sales from the First Bite Boutique, which I have with Michelle Dawson. For non-financial disclosures, I am a member of ASHA and a member of Special Interest Group 13. I also am a volunteer for Feeding Matters. I am a contributor for the book Chasing the Soil with Michelle Dawson, which I received no financial gain. I also am a member of the South Carolina Coalition Committee with ICDL DIF for time. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely. Okay, everybody, I am so excited about today's guest because honestly, Jen didn't know me from Adam. And then I reached out and she came and she showed up at um, the AAC Palooza at James Madison and my students raved about her. They loved her. She brought in all these devices and then she let me like bow out not so gracefully on a recording because we got new internet and the new internet isn't as good as the old internet, which I don't understand the purpose of having now fiber optics when the old box upstairs worked just as well. But here we are, here I sit. Anywho, she said yes and she came back. And y'all, this is absolutely a crucial conversation because we are going to talk about eye gaze, but also talk about the eye. And let's be honest, Very few of us had an in-depth AAC class, much less one that actually talked about the eye. And I am so excited. Also, when I told Aaron, Aaron geeked out. And then Aaron was like, oh, I'm coming to that one. So like we are tag teaming this together because we're that nerdy and excited. So uh, Jen, hi, thank you for coming on. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. That's awesome. I am also a nerd about this kind of stuff. So it sounds like that'll be a fun conversation. Okay. So um, I literally met you cold calling, trying to get devices for James Madison. And so Jen Rubenstein, you're with um, iGaze, which is actually the company is called iGaze. You got and it. That kind of tripped me out. I'll be honest. Cause I was like, but where's the rest of the name? Like I assumed there was going to be another name and it was short and sweet to the point, but Aaron and I like to start with the backstory. Can you take us from the beginning? Like, how did you find this field of speech pathology? Yeah, absolutely. And I will tell you a little bit more about the name because that's actually kind of fun as well. So I am a speech language pathologist. I actually did have the great privilege of having a fantastic AAC course. And I also had one of my placements in grad school did a lot of AAC. All of that said, did I know anything about the eye or about eye tracking at all? The answer is still no. So (laughs) it's definitely not. I mean, it could be an entire course in itself. It could probably be an entire semester worth of classes. So after I finished grad school, I went to grad school up in Boston. And um, I'm actually originally from the D.C. area. So I grew up in northern Virginia, ended up back in this area for my CF. I did my CF in a large subacute rehab facility in Washington, D.C., And then stayed on as a staff clinician after I got my C's, ended up being there for 11 and a half years. And those final two and a half years were as the director of rehab. Uh, I tell people sometimes is that I started there for my CF and then just never left. (laughs) (laughs) Also, wait, director of rehab, did you oversee like OT and PT as well? 
Yeah, the whole department for a 259-bed facility, yeah. That's refreshing because to have a DOR that's actually an SLP and like they get it because the productivity codes are so different for speech than they are. We could do a whole podcast on that. I can honestly say I don't miss it. I feel for everyone who is out there working in, in the SNF world. I actually left right when the big Medicare change happened. So when I was there, it was PPS. It's now PDPM. If folks work in that realm, they know what those letters mean. If not, don't worry about it. Um, but it tremendously changed the way the reimbursement structure works. And so I'm not as familiar with the way it is currently, but I know that that is um, pretty exclusively Medicare. So there are still um, some folks who are working. I think some state Medicaids are still using the PPS system. So it's, yeah, it's it's tough, you know, on, on the one hand, you want to give the best possible treatment to your patients. Um, but on the other hand, how do you keep the lights on? So you know, if, if everything closes down and no one has a job, then no one gets therapy. So it's, it's tough. It's, it's very tough. So I'm, I'm out, out of that realm now. Um, it all, it actually happened completely coincidentally. I had been, um, looking, looking elsewhere. I, you know, the, I was there for over a decade. And if you think of the decade from basically 2008 to 2018, just thinking about what technology was in that time, from the time I started, we're talking about a nursing home, you're talking about a lot of geriatric patients, so older folks. When I first started, if I put something with a touch screen in front of someone, a lot of times there would be, you know, I, I don't want to break it. If I touch it, it like what's going to happen? And by the time I left, everyone was coming in with their own iPhones. They put Wi-Fi in the facility. People were coming in with laptops and still working while they were there. So that decade was just a huge shift. I do not know off the top of my head when the first iPhone came out, but I think that was really, there have been touchscreen communication devices for a long time, but it really became accessible to, you could say the masses when it wasn't necessarily a dedicated device. You could actually pull up, you know, like a memory game on an iPad that you got as a free trial app. So things AAC-wise in that setting, I think, changed very, very dramatically while I was there. I didn't get the opportunity to do too much of it while I was there, um, but I took it upon myself to do some CEU courses outside of my job that were AAC-focused because it was just something that I personally had an interest in. And I could, again, do an entire hour just talking about how I landed here, but I actually just celebrated my fourth anniversary um, so I started three months exactly to the day before everything shut down in March of 2020. <laughs> so, right, my I started in December of 2019, um, had about three months to start to kind of get my feet under me in this brand new position before everything changed. I joke, I take full credit for causing the pandemic because I got my husband to take me to a ballet on Friday, March 13th. And if you knew Christian and you knew, like... And he had thrown his back out, but it was my, it was my birthday. So like he like powered through on pain pills in the ballet. We made it to, um, essentially intermission. And he was like, baby, I can't sit up. And I was like, hell froze over because you went to the ballet. That's why the universe broke. <laughs> so, Okay. Well then how did you find out about the field of speech therapy? Oh, so my entrance into speech was different than I think every single one of my classmates in grad school. 
when I first went to college, um, I did not graduate with this degree, but initially I started off college as a voice major. So I had done all kinds of choir, show choir, you know, musical theater, things like that all through high school um, and then went to college I thought to do vocal performance, it did not take. So that lasted about a semester. I changed majors, I changed schools, um, but I did keep singing. I did symphonic choir and, you know, acapella groups, things like that. And in addition to that, I had a lot of friends in the local music scene. So in the the very early, I guess we're calling them the aughts, the early, the early aughts in the DC Baltimore area, there were a lot of, um, rock, hard rock, metal, melodic metal. So, you know, when you're going to see a band, this is not necessarily like a big concert in a in a stadium. This is, you know, small bars, you know, two or three bands, everyone kind of knows each other. And if you go to a concert, if the guitar player breaks a string, they say, you know, they either switch out a guitar with someone else or they take some time to change the string while the drummer plays a little something or the singer tells some jokes. But if it's the singer, and something happens to their voice, your show is done, your tour is done, there goes your livelihood. So that was actually my my path. I went to grad school specifically thinking that I was going to specialize in voice disorders. Um, I did not, I think the internet is a bit more now than it was when I was looking for grad schools. I did not know what I was walking into and what the field of speech looked like. <laughs> so I was very surprised when I got there. Also, I had been um, out of college. So I had already graduated. I was working um, as a, a professional proofreader at a marketing company. So kind of uh, did the the scenic route when I got there. Um, did not even know that dysphagia was in our scope of practice. So kind of discovered the medical piece and really, really loved that. Um, and so I really focused on my plan had always been to work with adults. So I actually fought to not have a school placement. <laughs> I was able to do two medical placements and forego a school placement. Um, and then one of those, um, not one of my medical placements, but actually the one of my very first clinical placements was a specialty school working with students from early elementary age through age 20. And most of them used some type of AAC. So that happened kind of by accident. Um, I did a placement in an acute care hospital that was almost exclusively swallowing. I did a placement at a specialty hospital in their voice clinic. So that was 100% voice. So primarily adults, um, a lot of professional voice users, so singers, but also clergy people, teachers, lawyers, people who you are speaking as your job. So, you know, if if something goes wrong there, there's going to be a, a big problem. Are you going to be able to continue to do this, this job or to live this life? But not only that, you know, you would have people who were not necessarily using their voice as their primary job earning their living, but you might have someone who sang on the side doing doing something like I worked with a young woman who was a soloist in her church choir and that was a huge part of her life. And you know, then what happens if you're not able to to perform? So so yeah, that's that's how I ended up in grad school in in the first place. So we did that story a little bit backwards. So then you know what happened after I finished grad school. <laughs> Just kind of stumbled into the the medical Yeah, I went in to grad school for AAC. 
I worked at a school in Pittsburgh in undergrad um, that they were primarily AAC users. They had multi disability classrooms and then autism classrooms. And so I would help out at lunch and I would sit with some of the autism classrooms and they'd tell me what they want on their device. And they had, they had a lot of eye gaze users, like kids would come in and use their device to ask other kids to prom. And it was just like, it was the best environment. So like I went in, I was like, Hey, I'm going to do AAC. I'm going to do medically complex. It's like, I don't want to touch swallowing. And then I went with Michelle and I was like, I actually really love this too. But I, when I went into the school I was at was very um, into literacy. And I was like, I didn't know. I didn't know that we, (laughs) there's so many things that we do. I had no idea. It's wild how broad the umbrella is. If you do burnout, which happens in our field for sure. There are so many things you can do still within that umbrella, or you can do something like what I did, which is, yes, I am not like I have my C's, I have my license in a few states. I am not practicing directly under those and and billings for services, but I I think of what I'm doing now as like SLP adjacent. <laughs> okay, so you and I haven't worked together for a patient, but the folks back in South Carolina, Wyatt Franken, he has his bachelor's degree in speech pathology, and he's with Talk to Me, and then Kelsey Peterson, she's with Talk to Me, but she has her C's. That I could go to them on cases that I needed help for. Like um, Dr. Carol Page, she was the director of um, the South Carolina Assistive Technology Program for years. And in South Carolina, so small, they only have the one there at, um, it's housed with the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, which is kind of interesting that it was like in that, that, but like being able to go to you and say, hey, I have a case. I need guidance. I need help. You're SLP adjacent, but you're subject matter expert. And and that's what – and folks, it is okay to go to the subject matter expert and say, help. Like we don't have to know it all because we need our SLP adjacents to come in and say, okay, but have you considered this? Because this is the thing that it is that they do all the time. And they know it like that. Like Wyatt once taught me how to connect an eye gaze onto the stand because I couldn't figure out how to work the hooks. But also I don't do well with a basic screwdriver someday. So like those are really complicated. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. I mean, we talk to people all the time to kind of troubleshoot and throw around ideas. And obviously I work for this company, but first and foremost, I'm an SLP I have my scenes. Those are the ethics that I am bound by. And it's not necessarily, well, I'm only going to talk to you if it is specific to this device. Sometimes I get to, you know, take off vendor hat and put on SLP hat and say, you know, have we tried, you know, switch access? Can we call in the OT to see if maybe there's something that with a head array that might make sense? Will a sip and puff make sense? Will some kind of foot pedal, you know, not an expert in that, but neither is the SLP. It's a lot of times going to be PT, OT, respiratory. We're calling in a team. Like I'm working with a patient right now up in Pennsylvania who we did the initial trial. We went in knowing we were going to have some questions, ended up with questions. At least we knew what questions to ask. Sometimes that's the biggest difficulty. We went back in last week and brought the OT. So we had all three of us in the room, had multiple things to try, had some switches, had a joystick. Like our company's name is iGaze. I am going to come back and talk about that in a second. So that is what we really specialize in. But we recognize that's not going to be appropriate for every person. And that doesn't mean, okay, well, you don't 
get anything. That means, all right, this might not be the right path. What other path can we go down that might make the most sense for you in terms of access? So yeah, let me let me pick up that thread so I don't I don't lose it again. So yeah, you mentioned you were curious about the name. So for folks who are listening, if you are familiar with eye tracking as an access method, and if you've been around for a little while, you might be familiar with the company and just not recognize it by the name iGaze. So we've actually been around since the late 1980s. We are one of the oldest eye tracking communication companies. We're actually based in Fairfax, Virginia. And prior to the end of 2019, the company official name was LC Technologies. So that might be a name that folks have been familiar with. Over the years, the device has always been the iGaze Edge. The website has always been iGaze.com. The phone number has always been 1-800-iGaze. So there was a rebrand that happened actually right before I started with the company just to clarify that across all of the different areas because you already have iGaze in all these different places, but would you know that LC Technologies was iGaze.com? So it made sense to just make everything. So that little piece. <laughs> You've been around since the 80s. I have been around since the 80s. I am 40 and fabulous and coming in on the home stretch. I'm 41. But like, I got to be honest, we were talking with the boys yesterday. What were your favorite video games? My favorite video game as a kid was the duck. Remember the duck hunt? And then my dad would yell at me because I would put the gun, the like little Nintendo gun on the screen and like try to like, because that's how I could keep track of it. And my dad was like, (laughs) right? (laughs) You shot the duck. Yay. But like... I don't think of iGaze technology as being from the 80s because we had plastic guns for like Nintendos. <laughs> so like that's kind of crazy to me. Yeah, it was it was a bit before my time. I have seen the pictures, but think about what a computer looked like at that time. You know, now we're using these very slim touchscreen, you know, slip it in a sleeve and, you know, throw it in your backpack. At the time, it was basically the entire table. So you would have this monitor and it was this big, heavy tube monitor. You would have your tower that was the actual computer. And then even the camera was just this enormous piece of equipment. And a lot of people who were trying this for the first time, they'd never used a computer before. <laughs> so things have definitely changed since then. And the, the display on the screen, I mean... I am also a product of the 80s. It sounds like I'm a tad bit older than you. Just a tad. tad. (laughs) Aaron, say nothing. (laughs) But I'm young at heart. That's fine. (laughs) There were video games there that had very basic, like, dot kind of graphics. I remember in elementary school, we had a, I believe it was an Apple IIGS and the screen was black with green text. And like, that was, I think my, like maybe second or third grade, we got to take little trips down the hall to the computer lab. And so when you're thinking about what the display looked like, the display was very simple, very plain text only. Um, But we actually still have, it's been updated, but we still have the communication program that was being used at that point in time, you know, like I said, it has been updated a bit, but at the time it was a very basic keyboard and then very simple phrase pages that you're just thinking of a grid. I have one next to me. I want so badly to show you. This is a podcast that is not the right medium to be here. Let me show this off. 
Um, but I can probably send you the screen. Send us a picture. We need that. I yes, I will definitely do that. I can send you all kinds of of screenshots. And the thing is, if you have someone today who is not particularly familiar with technology, not comfortable with technology, a lot of people in their day to day work, even if they're not big into computers and tablets at home. They might have a computer they have to use for work, but there are plenty of people who either for whatever reason are not using a computer at work or they're already retired and hadn't made that transition yet. There's no prerequisite to be tech savvy to need some type of AAC. So we do have that very plain, very basic communication program available for folks that would really just rather not have bells and whistles. You know, they, they're not looking for word prediction. They just want, like, I look at the letter T and it types a T the end. Many of the kids that we're working with, that is the complete opposite. You know, they've been used to screens from the get-go, but this is not, you don't have to choose between them. It always comes with both, um, but it's, it's always there if someone wants something that's just stripped down, very plain, dark background, couple lines on the screen and and that's it. But yeah, I mean, I've seen pictures from what our our um, original medical director had done. You know, she would print out pictures and just tape them to the screen for using with kids who weren't literate yet because, you know, that's that's what you that's what you did, but in the very 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 early, you know, we're talking about, you know, 1989, 1991, like that's <laughs> that's what they were were doing with with kiddos. The boys and I have started watching Young Sheldon and it's staged at the young, like the late eighties. And as you're describing this, I'm imagining like the characters from Young Sheldon, like putting together an IK sport on like a computer there. But it, it turned out quite well in Michelle land as you were like describing these little narrations. <laughs> yes. Love this. Okay. So limited experience with eye gaze in general. And I remember very, very long time ago, probably close to 11 years ago, I was up visiting Carol at the assistive tech office. And um, it was one of my first couple visits. I was talking to her about a patient and she was the first person to talk to me about eye gaze. She was like, have you considered this? And I was like, well, no, the patient has a cortical vision impairment. And she was like, that doesn't prohibit them from accessing an eye gaze as, as an option. But my limited experience is filtered through the lens of my husband's brother has a cortical vision impairment. And so like, I'm used to thinking of it in the terms of uncle Matthew. Right. And then over the years I've had other patients, but can you kind of just talk to us some about the eye and the power of the eye and how the eye interfaces with the eye gaze. Yeah. And it's interesting that you started the question talking about CVI. I feel like that's, that's not just a whole podcast for itself. That's an entire like semester long <laughs> grad school course that I, I really wish that we had had. All of the names are escaping me, but I do have some folks that I can point you towards. There is one person that I have been directed to, to find more information from the, the person who literally wrote the book and they're based in Pittsburgh. And I apologize that the name is not one that is at the forefront of my brain. But yeah, CVI is fascinating in that it is not necessarily one thing. So you've seen one student with CVI, you've seen one student with CVI. So the next student might have the same diagnosis and a diagnosis of CVI and what that actually means for them is very different. So 
Um, but in in general, so eye tracking, how eye tracking works, right? Eye tracking is, in general, a method of determining where someone is looking. And when I'm talking about a camera and eye tracking, how that works, I'm doing air quotes. I know that's not a thing that people in podcast land can see. So when, when I'm saying things like that, that is not specific to the device that is manufactured by the company I work for. This is true across the board for any eye tracker, whether it's being used for gaming, being used for accessibility, being used. I know some cars have it built into the dashboard now. Like this is just how eye tracking works. So you have a camera or multiple cameras that take pictures of either one or both eyes and those images are digitized and analyzed to determine the gaze location, where you are looking. That gaze data can be passively collected, so that can be used for analysis and research, or it can be used immediately as an access method. So every single eye tracker on the market today uses some amount of infrared light to illuminate the pupil, and pictures are taken to track the reflection of that light. So picture an eye. Now I am used to doing this with a screen that I can use to illustrate. So in the absence of a diagram, you can look in a mirror or I can share the documents from our recent ASHA presentation if you're interested. So the anatomy I wanna think about are the pupil, the iris, the cornea, and the eyelid. So the cornea is the clear dome-shaped surface that covers the front of the eye. The pupil is the opening that allows light to pass through. The iris, which is the colored area, so like mine or hazel, can make the pupil opening or the aperture of the eye larger or smaller. Inside the eye is the lens, which is a transparent structure that focuses light onto the retina. And the retina is the light-sensitive nerve layer that lines the back of the eye. So this is inside the back of the eye. And that allows the optic nerve to carry signals to the visual cortex in the brain to assemble into images that we can see and understand. I know that's an awful lot in a very short time without pictures. Okay. So one, Cleveland Clinic has a fantastic, if you Google um, what eye anatomy, Cleveland Clinic's image is perfect. And two, I know for a fact that Jen carries eyeball gummies that according to Goose and Bear are delicious. And that would be the, um, that would... <laughs> also I had them on my tray on my desk because yes, I'm a hundred years old and I have a platter of where there's originals and candies and I had eyeballs. None of the grad students wanted the eyeballs, but my boys were like, mom, we want all the eyeballs. Um, the eyeballs are pretty, the eyeball gummies are also pretty accurate according to her description and Cleveland Clinic. So there's that. <laughs> Maybe when I do in-person in-services, I should start just slicing open the eyeball gummy and using that. <laughs> For those of us that are neurodiverse in the back, that would help pay attention. Yes. All right. So those are just the initial eye structures that we are thinking about. And there's also three types of muscles. So there are ocular muscles. Those are the muscles that actually rotate the eyes within the head. So if you're looking up, looking down, looking all around, the muscles that actually move your eye to point the different directions. There are pupillary muscles that controls the pupil size. And there are eyelid muscles. The eyelid muscles open and close your eyes for protection, for sleeping, for lubrication. 
So eye trackers use infrared light to shine into the eye through the pupil, which passes through the lens inside the eye and reflects off the retina at the back of the eye. This reflection illuminates the pupil and allows the eye tracker to find the eye. Every eye tracker will need some type of calibration. Every eye is shaped differently, and calibration takes images of the eye pointed at different directions to map the shape of the eye in order to determine where the user is looking. Okay. So when I've done that previously with some of my patients, and some of them, I mean, they've had microcephaly, we've had um, strokes in utero, lots of different like etiologies, but I've had, I can't, and I can't think of the term it's on the grid. And then we like do the tracking program. Sorry. The sun just came in through the, um, very large windows in my office. And now I can't see you speaking of like taking an infrared light to the eye, but, um, that has allowed us like to track where the individual is looking at the, the, the screen or the grid. Um, I can't, I can't, it was on grid box. I can't remember. Are you talking about like a game, Michelle? Yes. But it was also like the like test. Sometimes they'll do like, yeah, like they'll do, they'll have like, there's calibration that they'll, that they'll do a lot with like dots on the screen or like, you know, yes. with kids they'll do like, mm-hmm. yes. And then we can kind of see where their eyes naturally go to on, um, to help us figure out where we need to position. Um, because if we've had little ones that track up to the upper left and they have a harder time because of, you know, whatever's going on with them physically, they can't get to the lower right. Then if we move the full screen up, that might help them have like a better um, overall access to the complete screen. Does that make sense? I should have had a second cup of coffee. I've been at it for a little while today. Yeah. Yeah. There are some people that'll be able to with calibration, be able to access all areas of the screen, but not necessarily everyone. And sometimes that means moving things on the screen, like having the most important buttons located in a certain place on the screen. Sometimes that means moving the entire screen somewhere. So we will have initial like basic positioning recommendations. But if we find that for one particular individual, it makes sense to have it in a slightly different place. There's not a a right and wrong across the board for everyone. A lot of this is going to be specifically tailored to the individual. When you have complex vision and complex eye and complex positioning things going on, that is especially true. But also think about, you know, the, the eye tracker does not actually know what an eye looks like. Like we know We look at you, I can look at you on the tiny little thumbnail that I have on my laptop screen right now, and I can see your eye. And even though you're very small, I can actually tell where you're looking just because we are, it is programmed into our brains that you can tell at at just a glance what direction someone's eye is pointing. For a computer, they don't actually know what an eye even is. So they are programmed to find landmarks that indicate a pupil. So most pupils are circular and most retinas reflect light, but it's important for us to keep in mind that many people of all ages who may need alternate means of access, the the patients and students we're working with who will be using eye tracking as an access method, they often have complex eyes and complex bodies. 
So you might have a pupil that's so small that light has trouble passing through, or at least sufficient light to successfully track. The pupil can also be extremely large or dilated. Uh, this can be as a result of medications. This is something we see a lot with baclofen, which is a common medication for people with CP, but also with spinal cord injuries, ALS. Um, and then I had can... no idea. Oh, yeah. So what <laughs> does that do to its ability to track? It it depends. <laughs> it really depends. So we always, well, that's, and then, so that's, baclofen is some, one of the medications that a lot of times makes eyes dilate. We see the opposite um, a lot of times with narcotic painkillers. So it'll be like a pinpoint pupil and very little light passing through. So thinking about light needs to pass through the eye in order for eye trackers to work. So anything that impedes that light can make eye tracking more difficult, if not impossible. So that can include cataracts. Cataracts is clouding of the lens inside the eye. So a lot of times people think of cataracts as something that older people get, but they can also be congenital. So they're both congenital or acquired. Um, and they may or may not impact someone's vision, at least to the point that they notice it. So you might talk to someone and they say, oh, yeah, I have cataracts in my right eye. Or they might not even know, especially if it has not impacted their vision. If you have someone who does not have vision difficulties that need something like glasses, they might not have been to an eye doctor to even know that there was a cataract there. They can form very, very slowly over time. So if you're not noticing that there's something impeding vision, you might not have had um, an appointment to, to take a look at that. Um, I have eye an eye disease that I learned about. Oh, yeah? Oh. Well, it's, I, well, Michelle, I got anxious about it. Well, I have optic nerve drusen, um, which like haven't really, I mean, I have um, astigmatism, so that's what's affected my vision. But then when I went down a rabbit hole and my one eye doctor was like, you could eventually lose your peripheral vision, but I've rarely seen, and all the research is like, it doesn't actually, most, the majority of the time, you don't tend to see too many deficits. But um, yeah, when I had my eye exam, like my optic nerve lit up like a Christmas tree because it was like all the calcium buildup in it. Mm-hmm. Yes, that. I panicked um, a little bit. So good. As you should. But I mean, you saw, you're, you saw the specialist. You've got the right doctor. And I mean. No, I don't. You're, you're going to get the right person. We're claiming joy here. We'll be all right. I can't do anything about it. You can't cure it. There's no seen a neuro ophthalmologist. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of times, there's some good ones in Cincinnati. Yeah, that's a lot of times. We'll well, I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but a lot of times when questions come up, I think I I said earlier in a different context. um, Sometimes it's about knowing what questions to ask. So sometimes we'll have someone who's had a lot of difficulty and just didn't know why and we'll come in and we still know it's not working, but at least we have, we know where to direct the questions and neuro-ophthalmology, they're not necessarily readily available. Um, Sometimes their offices are not um, fully equipped to accommodate things like power wheelchairs. And so that, that makes specialist visits extra, extra difficult sometimes. But, but yeah, I mean, that's, 
there's a lot that we do know about the eye. And I say we meaning like myself, my colleagues. I am not an eye doctor of any any flavor. Um, so a lot of times, at least we'll know, okay, we have a question. We might take a screenshot and say, okay, let's take this to a physician who is an eye doctor. Ophthalmology is great. Neuro-ophthalmology, if possible, because they're the ones that will actually be able to address some of these things. Um, so just the one, one more thing about, oh, yep. Let me No, I was just going to say, but these are the things that aren't covered in AAC class. I distinctly remember taking this amazing AAC class from an AAC, um, user. She taught adjunct down at Old Dominion university. Cause that's where I did my undergrad down, um, in Norfolk, Virginia. And it was phenomenal, but it didn't take into account all of the, the medical stuff. But it's that interprofessional practice predicated upon interprofessional education. That's how we serve these individuals with complex bodies that, yes. Well, and Michelle, where I, where I get frustrated is like, and this is not a knock to OTs at all. OTs have a lot of understanding about vision and they have a lot of understanding about access. But what I do find is because they don't have courses on AAC specifically, it kind of scares them a little bit, but they have this knowledge to help with the access, but it's kind of translating that, like, how is this relating to access to the device? Cause I have a lot of OTs who are like, I don't do AAC or I like, but they do, they just don't always know how they do, if that makes sense. Um, and that's where I think some of that disconnect can happen. If it's not an OT that's in a, you know, in an environment that ha- that's the, what they're constantly doing. Yeah. And there's, even when it's not explicitly AAC, there's so much of what OT does and PT as well. Mm-hmm. And depending on where you're located, what your clinic is, um, sometimes seating and positioning falls under OT, sometimes PT and sometimes both. But if you have someone who is not in a good seating situation, that it's not always possible, but if that can be rectified first, that makes a lot of things, like everything else can kind of fall into place. So if you have someone who is, um, just as an example, I was speaking with an SLP um, in, I think it might've actually been Holly from the TTAC at Virginia Tech um, and talking about, <laughs> she's amazing. But we're talking about, you know, if you have someone who you have a student who doesn't necessarily have a lot of access to um, specialists, a lot of access to medical care, you might not have the option of going to someone for seating and positioning, getting a specialized custom chair built, especially with with very young kids. It's expensive enough if you're a full-grown adult, but with kids, kids are growing so fast. Like I know just as like just thinking about shoes, you know, I, I was a figure skater and that is ridiculously expensive. And when you're a kid and your feet are growing fast, that's you know, every few months you're outgrowing it. How do you get a chair that's going to be comfortable and supportive and can also continue to be all of those things for multiple years? It's it's tough, but a lot of times you'll have someone who they don't have that kind of chair. So maybe they're in something that's closer to a stroller or a very basic 
a transport wheelchair that's way too big. So you don't have the torso support. You don't have the neck support. You're kind of flopping all over the place. It's how do you do eye tracking when you're not stable and you're not comfortable? So yeah, there are a lot of pieces and that's, we try to do some thorough pre-screening before even scheduling a demo. So if someone were to reach out to us and say, you know, we think this might work, you know, can we try it? Usually we want to start by saying, it's great to talk with you. Let me ask you some questions. So before we even schedule an appointment to meet up, we're going to say, okay, first off, how are you currently communicating? So is this someone who has been in the situation they're in? Was this like a recent um, disease process change? Was this a recent accident or injury Was this something that you've been dealing with for multiple years? Are you currently speaking? If you're not speaking, do you have something that you do to communicate with the people around you, whether that is with low-tech AAC, whether that is using sign, whether that's something like ASL or even makeshift signs? Sometimes people come up with gestures just within a family. Is this, you know, just grimacing? You know, they're not speaking, but you can tell by a facial expression if something is making them unhappy or very excited. You know, are they very still when they're not excited about something, but when they are excited about something, maybe they'll kick out a leg. There's a lot of times, especially if you're talking with parents, sometimes the response will be like, oh, they don't communicate, but I know what they they want or what they need. And so a lot of times we need to kind of dig, dig deeper. And this is um, the SLPs in particular are, are generally pretty good at this. You know, what the parent or whoever we're talking to caregiver is thinking of as communication. Again, I'm doing air quotes. We know that all I of those things. I love that you say that. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> But we know those facial expressions, those flailing out an arm when you're trying to get someone's attention, or if you're just happy or excited or interesting or angry, we recognize that all of that is communication. You don't have to be speaking or writing or typing or signing to be communicating. So sometimes it's not just a, we're not just asking a yes, no question where we want to dig a little bit more um, just to know when we're, when we're going in. Um, the next big one is how is their vision? So we want to know, is there any history of eye surgery? Um, sometimes I don't use the word surgery anymore. I'll say uh, procedure. I had someone who told me they had never, ever had eye surgery. And then we had our appointment and I'm looking at the eye image that you have on, on our particular device and I'm seeing something that is looking curious to me. So I said, have you ever had cataracts removed? She goes, oh yeah. <laughs> so cataract removal is just such a common procedure now, it is very likely that the doctor that did the procedure never called it surgery. You know, it's done outpatient. It's very quick. It's very routine. Tons of people get it. So she didn't think of it as surgery, but she had had a procedure, air quotes, and she had had lens replacement surgery. That um, If you go a little bit further into the mountains and you say, do you have the diabetes? They're not going to know it. But if you say, you got the sugars, honey, how are you sugars doing? Everybody has the sugars. 
but well, diabetes is, it, it's just not a, a term that everybody knows. It's just, yeah, code switching. Yeah. Technical jargon versus what are the words that folks are actually using and how are they describing in their, in their own words? And then also, do they wear glasses or contacts? You know, there are a lot of folks who have a, what you might consider a normal eye history, but they've worn glasses for years, or maybe they just started wearing readers or they're, you know, I wear glasses. I've been wearing glasses since fifth grade. I didn't really know how glasses worked until I started doing this job and learned, oh, that's what the lens is doing to make it so I can see. Now, when you ask these questions, who who do who are you meeting with? Are you meet like when the folks call in to like do the screen? Are they meeting? Is it the caregiver, the patient, the clinician? Who can call in? Sorry, we got so excited, and, and then I was like, "Wait, back up! I need to know that part of it." Yeah. yeah, no, no. The the answer to your question is yes. It was not a yes or no question, but the answer is yes. Um, we have folks who find us online and reach out through our website. We have clinicians that reach out because we've worked with them before or we've worked with one of their colleagues before. So when we are having these very initial conversations, sometimes it's with a clinician, sometimes it's with the patient themselves, depending on what their diagnosis is, what their situation is. Sometimes it's a family member. So it might be the direct caregiver. It might be, you know, my cousin is going through this right now and they seem really overwhelmed. So I figured that I would help out by, by reaching out. I've had emails from a neighbor or a family friend. So that very initial outreach. And sometimes it's just, I found you I'm curious how this works. They might not even tell us up front because I have a person in mind I think could benefit. They're just like, what is this? I've never heard of this. How does this work? How does one go about getting it? And, you know, like like a lot of things, like obviously you could just, you know, here's my credit card number. Thank you for this purchase. But for the most part, we have folks who are using insurance. And so there's a whole process that that goes through. And with school systems, sometimes that's even more different because sometimes students who are in public schools will be using health insurance. Sometimes the school system will have other procedures in place. So it really depends on the person. It depends on the state. Sometimes it depends on the county or something even smaller. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of questions we ask. I'm usually asking the clinical questions, but we have funding questions um, as well. And that's, again, that's, that is its own, its own podcast. Mm -hmm. I do have an eye question. Yeah. What, um, in regards to like fatigue, it feels like the, it, Based on how you're describing it, it feels very passive in the way that the camera is kind of looking at the eye, but and I worked with a lot um, of girls with Rett syndrome. I was worked at the Rett syndrome clinic in Shriners when I was in South Carolina. And a lot of them, I mean, a lot of them had eye gaze. And I know the caregivers, like a lot of their questions would be like, how much effort? And I know it's different with every child, but what do you notice in regards to someone that's using an eye gaze most of the time with how much effort their eyes are using, if that makes yeah. sense as a question. Absolutely. And that's that's a big concern that I think a lot of people have is how fatiguing, how tiring it would be. So this, I'm going to go back to, I was talking about the types of muscles 
in the eye. So those ocular muscles, the actual muscles that rotate the eye within the head, those muscles do not fatigue. That is the same type of muscle as the heart muscle. If you think of when we are asleep, our eyes are moving. You might have seen like pictures or, or videos, I guess, of someone who's dreaming, who's in REM sleep, and their eye is moving even though it is closed. So those muscles do not fatigue. Eyelid muscles, so the muscles we use to blink, can fatigue. So we have a couple things at play here. We have, first off, where is your device positioned? So there is a way to optimally um, position a device to minimize fatigue. We like to have it so you do not have to look up because that can be, so just right now, again, I know that folks out there in podcast land cannot see us, but keep your head on straight, but with just your eyes, look up at the ceiling for about two seconds. Can you feel that? You can feel that. That that was a very short period of time. So obviously we're not going to have the device on the ceiling, but just the act of looking up causes that pull. If you're doing that for more time, that's going to be more tiring. Also, infrared light is warm light. So warm light will potentially dry the eye faster. When eyes are dry, you need to blink. When you're blinking more, that's using those eyelid muscles. So of all of the devices, exactly, all the devices out there use infrared light. They do not all use the same amount of infrared light. So some devices use one single infrared LED, others use a whole array of lights. At the same time, devices that use a whole array of lights might have a wider head box. So a low, not more accuracy, but just a bigger area. So someone who has more movement might be, benefit from a larger area, what we call a head box, the entire area that a camera can see. So it's not that, oh, more light is better, oh, less light is better. It really depends on the individual. And that's one of the big pieces that the, the gold standard, the, the recommendation is to try at least three different devices from different manufacturers. That's the asterisk there, from different manufacturers, because different cameras function in a different way. And if you haven't tried, it's kind of like test driving a car. If you have never tried it, you don't know what the difference is. You want to find what is going to be the most comfortable, what is going to feel the most accurate. And it does not matter what I think. What matters is when the device is being used by the person, what it feels like for that person. I also, I like what you said too. I, I think that, you know, unfortunately, and I don't view it this way, but it feels like in a lot of places, the child almost has to like earn the device, if that makes any sense, like, which is so unfortunate because you shouldn't have to earn communication. But it's like, if one thing doesn't work, re like, and my focus, very individualized, very trauma-informed care. And with that involves a lot of time and effort to understand that client, patient, wherever they're coming from. And, and people, I'll, you know, and I learned this from Michelle, like I'll introduce high tech super early, especially if I know a, a patient's diagnosis. And sometimes I'll I'll go, I'll have to go to eye gaze first 
because of their motor differences, knowing that there might be a point in time where direct access is an option. Or like, I think that's where it can be difficult too. It's like, they deserve communication now. It might change with how they want to access a device and finding that balance of, is it going to stick with them? But how is it best for them to communicate in this moment when they're their communication is just as valid too, um, as opposed to, oh, they're not ready for it yet, which really bothers me. With AAC, I feel like we spend all this time talking about feature matching, which is fantastic when you know what features you're matching. But for a lot of the people that we're working with, whether these are pediatric patients or students, or these are our adults, have you been able to complete a comprehensive language and cognition assessment? That's an important question. If the answer is... What's the bias in the test that you selected? Can we go back to that one? But okay. <laughs> I mean, that's... Can can I do basic orientation questions with you? Can I get a yes, no response from you? Do I know if you are understanding the things that I am saying to you? If we don't have the ability, if this person does not have the ability to either speak or make some kind of gesture that we know what it means, that means that what what, are, what features are being matched. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Which are not- most of Michelle and I's patients, the ones that we're really trying to give them an opportunity to communicate. We use the communication matrix a lot, which I love because it allows you to really pick up those very subtle cues of communication. Like I, I vividly remember having this patient with Brett syndrome come in, she was older, maybe almost 10. And you could, I mean, she was so engaged with mom, had so many things to say, was non-speaking and her device was overwhelming to caregiver. So did I know fully from the patient that it was overwhelming to her? No, but her cues were telling me it was because she wasn't using it. And I remember like mom was like, I just want her to, you know, to hear I love you or to hear something like that. And I also had, I had to advocate for what she wanted to say on the device. Like she loved poop jokes. So we put fart jokes on there, but also had to advocate to mom that every time she reached back and touched her, she was saying, I trust you and I love you. So it's such a balance of like, not, and we know this, I mean, we all do it, but like, such a balance of helping caregiver. And I, and I don't know if you get this, I mean, we could talk forever, so I I will shut up in a second, I promise. But um, I have a lot of families that will be like, they don't really use a device at home. And sometimes that I go, when you go home from work and you're exhausted and you've worked so hard all day, sometimes you just want to sit on the couch and put your hand on the other person's leg. Like some of that is just, you get me and I don't feel the need to use it. Some of, you know, but there's a, I just went down a rabbit hole. I'm really sorry. But um, uh, I don't know what my point was. I just really i am appreciative of like your advocacy for working with that family, working with that client, working, you know, taking the time to understand them, to provide what they want, even though it's going to take a lot of work. If like you said, we don't have as much data from them. Yeah. Sometimes what that means is first off, making sure we're all on the same page before we start so that we don't have unrealistic expectations. 
but coming in with the device, with the understanding, this is not a device trial that's going to determine if you are going to be successful using this device. This is me bringing this device that we can use as an assessment tool. And what does that mean for just sticking with this example with a pediatric patient? What does that language assessment look like? So what, what I was taught in school and what all of the literature tells us is that for a child language assessment, this is accomplished with play. You're not going to sit a three-year-old at a table, expect them to sit quietly while you just show them pictures and demand that they name them. So just because- Can, of- you, can you put that on repeat? Because this is the <laughs> dynamic assessment. A standardized assessment alone does not capture what our children are capable of doing. And if we learn through play and truly seek to understand what gets them excited, that's where... Yeah, it doesn't capture what they want to communicate. Yes. If we don't let them play. Like you met like... That's just putting so many demands. It does not matter if they're, if you're talking about, you know, a typically developing child with, you know, this is not any kind of special education scenario. You are just talking about a kid in preschool who is going about a task. Like that's just not something that that's not expectation that is being put on this child. So why should this be different? Because we have this high tech device. So there are ways to incorporate play. And that might mean, you know what? We know that we need calibration in order to be accurate with the tracking for you to access this device. But that's not what we're trying to do right now. What we're trying to do is, is this something that is of interest to you? If I'm working with an adult with ALS, I put a device in front of them and say, look at the yellow ball and it'll you know, take a measurement of your eye and move on to the next one. Okay, here's a keyboard, spell your name. I'm not doing that with a child. I'm also not doing that with adults who have potentially cognitive communication deficits and we're not exactly sure what they are. So this is more, okay, I have a young child. It's very possible, especially now that it is 2024, that they have had screen time. They know what that is. They've had an iPad in front of them and it's playing Coco Melon and that is not an unusual occurrence. I can't just say to this child, hey, this is an interactive screen. And if you look at a thing, it'll do a thing. That's, that's not how this works. They have to experience that and make that connection. They have to have that little light bulb moment. I cannot lecture this young child until they get that. It is up to them to get the opportunity to explore until they realize, wait a second. Every time I looked at that button, it played that song and showed me that thing. Hmm. And that very likely means I'm going to put it in front of them and I'm going to walk away. Depending on the age of this child and their safety, we're not going far. We're not necessarily leaving the room. But, you know, we're going to be over here chatting and we're just going to put this in front of them and just kind of see what happens. They are exploring. They are the child who is sitting on the play mat and they are picking up the toy and they're turning it around and they're poking it with their finger and they may be putting it in their mouth. That's what their classmates are doing. They are getting the same opportunity. They're just using their eyes. So we have just a very simple cause and effect type of page that 
all that it does. If you look at something, something happens, you know, just the software that's on the device that our company has. So the iGaze Edge has a software called Mind Express, and there's one of the cause and effect pages is a pile of leaves. You know, like it's fall and you've been raking, there's a pile of leaves. As you look around, the leaf will disappear. And at the bottom of the pile of leaves, there's like a ladybug or, you know, some little cute kind of thing. But you have to lift all the leaves in order to see the thing at the bottom. You know, there's just a very, very basic, there's no right and wrong. There's no expectation of any kind. This is just exploration. Is it going to immediately click? Not necessarily, but it's just kind of exploring. You know what? I don't think so. And that I feel like for a lot of folks, and this is not just children, I feel like that would be, there is one, it, it's, it is not farts, I do apologize, but there is one that's, there's like an opera singer and a tomato appears on the screen. And if you look at it, it'll throw it at the opera singer. And the first time I saw that, I was like, wait, that's mean. Like, you know what? There's going to be kids and that that is the one that is going to be effective. So there you go. <laughs> I've seen the pie splat one and the fart ones with like, I mean, maybe maybe there is one and I'm just not familiar with it. Okay. That's my request. I like the (laughs) fart one. I mean, also boy mom life, but like, you know, farts are fabulous. So unless it happens on your foot when you're cuddling up next to your child, that's that's not, oh God, you have no idea. (laughs) Yeah. There, There are certain things that can unite everyone and sometimes everyone just needs a little giggle. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think there's any age limit on, on the fart jokes. So. No. Okay. All right. So <laughs> I'm aware of the bad news that like we have to wrap up because I have to go to a practicum planning meeting in like five minutes. And so, um, but um, Jen, this is amazing. Can we please schedule for a part two? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we could go on for, we have a lot of things we can talk about for sure. I know because we barely got through like, I mean, we got through like some anatomy, but like we teased into the CVI stuff and we just got into like the components of the eval. But like, I want to know what it looks like when you're going through like the process into like intervention and like what the program systems are or like, what are the alternatives if the eye gaze doesn't work or say they're um, disease progression is not deterioration, but like the prognosis is optimal. And then how do we teach how to use direct access? You see, like yeah, all the things. I agree. <laughs> all of those things. Okay. <laughs> all of the things. I'm very excited. I got so excited. I had to move. I was like, I need the sun on my back. I have to be able to see because this is fantastic. Okay. All right. So then on that note, um, one, what are your final thoughts for now? Because I feel like we cut you off midstream, but like I have to go see Geraldine. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's okay. I think um, the the biggest pieces to keep in mind um, that that pre screening, you know how how do you know if this person is if, if this is a potential access method for the person that you're working with. And it might be very obvious to you, 
And it might be, you know, I'm not sure if this is going to be the right path for this person. Um, for that kind of question, I would recommend reaching out. You're welcome to reach out to me, whether it is specifically for this company or just about eye tracking in general. We welcome those questions. We get questions from folks who have devices from other manufacturers a lot of the time. We're, we're happy to kind of bounce ideas around there. Because um, it might be that it's not a no, but it's a let's get another specialist visit first so that we have more information going in, if that is even a possibility. Um, and yeah, I think that's really the the biggest takeaway, at least of, of this. It's, we like to be curious about the eye. One thing that I did not mention, the last and really important question about that pre-screening is, do they have volitional eye movement? You know, can they not not track something across the screen, but volitionally, can you just ask them, look up, down, left, right? Can their eyes move in those directions? If the answer is no, that does not necessarily mean this is not the right access method for them, but it gives us a lot of important information going in. You know, there are some people who have had um, brainstem stroke or other brain injuries, and their eyes maybe only move up and down, and they don't move left to right. So that might be something that is obvious just by saying, look up, look down, look left, look right. Um, that said, you might not see it until you put a device in front of them and say, huh, that's interesting. Let's explore that further. So we, we didn't even get into nystagmus because that makes oh, yeah. me think about nystagmus when there's, the, okay, so we'll have to pick up with nystagmus. Yep. Oh, like, <laughs> yes. Okay, so then part two, we'll yeah, start. We can talk about nystagmus, we can talk about strabismus, we can talk about, yeah, we've got all kinds of things we can talk about. I don't think I talked about ptosis, that's when the eyelid blocks part of the pupil. So yeah, we've got all, all kinds of things that can potentially, you know, interact with eye tracking. Yes, okay, so we'll do, uh-huh, uh-huh, do round two. Okay, so then on that note, if somebody's listening right now and they have a question, how can they reach you? Yeah, and I will make sure that you have this information to put in your show notes as well. Um, but our company phone number is 1-800-EYEGAZE, E-Y-E-G-A-Z-E. So that reaches us in Fairfax, Virginia. So that's um, East Coast U.S. time. And my email, it might be easiest for me to just give you my email to, <laughs> to put in there because my name's kind of long, but it's my name is Jen Rubenstein. So it's J-E-N-N dot R-U-B-E-N-S-T-E-I-N at E-Y-E-G-A-Z-E dot com. Beautiful. And and folks, they have a Instagram account as well. It's simply called iGaze. That's the handle name. E-Y-E-Gaze, G-A-Z-E. So um, be sure to check them out on the land of Instagram. And then the question that I love to ask, if somebody has any love money lying around, do you have an organization, an entity, a nonprofit that they could donate to, something that means a lot to your heart? It can be SLP related or not SLP related. Where would we sprinkle joy to? Oh, goodness. I did not do a good job of preparing for this in advance. Um, I think I'll, for part two, I'll have another one. So I'll think for this one, I'll um, start by throwing out um, there are local chapters of the ALS Association all over the country. And they provide a lot of services, including support with assistive technology. That is a, a pretty 
pretty great one. Um, I guess while I'm on that note, speaking of ALS, there's an organization based in New Orleans called Team Gleason that was started by Steve Gleason, who is um, a former NFL player for the New Orleans Saints who has ALS. And the support that they provide to folks with ALS all over the country is just incredible. I hadn't heard about either one of those. So yes, I love doing this and finding out where people want to send joy because it's always so impactful and personal and it's just lovely. But yes. Okay. You are freaking amazing. Erin and I are so grateful that you came on. We will, um, folks, be sure to um, check out uh, First Bite Podcast on Instagram as well as the land of the Facebooks. And um, we will get you scheduled for part two, (laughs) maybe part three. Thank you for joining us for today's course. To complete the course, you must log into your account and complete the quiz and the survey. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry, and entered both your ASHA number and a complete mailing address in your account profile prior to course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to reflect on your ASHA transcript. Please note that if this information is missing, we cannot submit to ASHA on your behalf. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you next time. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.